the question of automation plays a big role because it also displays the central idea of work that was so central to the New Deal order, of course, and the question of tackling poverty through regulating the labor markets. And the moment this question becomes to not disappear, but become less central, then it opens the, the space for different kind, a different kind of policy. Welcome to another episode of New Work in Intellectual History. We are produced by the Institute of Intellectual History at the University of St Andrews. Intellectualhistory.net is the Institute's website. And there was an absolute treasure trove of things on there. I really recommend you go and have a look. There's more than you might expect. For this episode, I am joined by Dr Anton Yeager and Professor Daniel Zamora Vargas. Hello, gentlemen. How are you doing? Very good, thanks. Yeah, very good. Thanks for the invitation. So Anton is newly appointed as a lecturer in history of political thought at University College Oxford. And Daniel is a professor of sociology at the University of Libre de Bruxelles. And together, they are the authors of an absolutely brilliant book, which came out back in spring of this year, 2023, entitled Welfare for Markets, A Global History of Basic Income, published, fittingly enough, as we will see, by the University of Chicago Press, uh, how to get into this? I suppose the idea of a universal basic income has gained in prominence, it seems, uh, in recent years. I certainly you know, see it in op-ed pieces a lot more than might have done 10 years ago. And it's also an idea that, as you show, fascinatingly has sort of non-partisan appeal. It appeals across the political, has appeal across the political spectrum. But the idea of a basic income has a history, as you chart in the book. Could you introduce it uh, to us, the, the, you know, the point of the book? Uh, what prompted you to, to write it, to put it together? And then as you're doing so, could you also introduce our audience to that central idea of a basic income? Uh, Daniel, do you want to get us going? Um, yeah, I mean, I could just give a few um, um, ideas about the, what we tried to, to do in the book, which is, I mean, to use basic income. Um, so, of course, it is a story of basic income. And, you know, we've been discussing about this idea um, recently more and more, and there has been pilots everywhere uh, in the US, of course, but also for some time in, in, in the global south. Um, but the idea of the book was also to explore broader shifts. I mean, how, and as you said, uh, how can we explain that it actually appeals to people on the left and on the right? And it's it's not just uh, about the idea itself, but it's about, also about changes about how we conceive uh, inequality, how we, we measure poverty, uh, how we think about the role of the state um, in, in society, how we think about needs, uh, which is also a, a big topic uh, in the book, and how all those shift in a certain sense create a, a context in which uh, ideas uh, such as basic income, but also in a broader sense, cash transfers as a way to alleviate uh, poverty became more appealing. So the book is, in a certain sense, a story of that shift, a story of the conditions under which basic income becomes like a, an idea that it's it's more... Um, it becomes possible uh, and appealing for politicians uh, uh, and not just, let's say, something that you will find in, uh, in libraries or, or, or academic seminars. It's not just an utopian idea, but now it's something that might very well happen maybe at some point. Uh, so, yeah, that's, let's say, the, the, the kind of a strategy we used uh, uh, to, to approach the idea. Anton, I wonder if we could develop that, and this might link into the sort of the first chapter, but 
what, why why did you put this together? What what were you prompted by to um, to write a history of basic income? I mean, the starting motivation was very simple, namely that there was no available history of basic income um, except for some of the more evangelical ones, insofar as they were very much histories written by proponents of basic income who sought to make a case for the proposal based off a heroic and what we call mythological history. And when we met each other and we were both working on our respective topics, we actually realized that looking at that current literature, there simply was a gap. Namely, no one had written a more cool-headed or sort of distant, I'd say even frigid history of the idea, and that was the initial ambition. Um, at the same time, it was about debunking some of the bad histories which were out there and adding a better history to it. But as Danielle already said, there is also a deeper conceptual ambition, namely tell a story about the 19th and the 20th century that hasn't been properly told in that way before, for which basic income is just the ideal prison. Uh, there are a number of developments you can illustrate and track through something like basic income, which I think very few ideas are as symbolic of. Mm. Can I ask, is that sort of point of um, historicizing the argument, uh, does it, is it intended to then, is it meant as a critique? Is it meant as sort of a, a, a means of um, challenging the idea or is it to help people better understand where it's coming from and why it may be appealing or might not work or might work, that sort of thing? Daniel, maybe you could respond to that. Um, and yeah, I, I, absolutely. So there is definitely some 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 part of it, and I think Anton will say more about that about the let's say uh, history uh, historicizing aspect, uh, which is about getting this kind of more contextual understanding of it, and also in a certain sense criticizing um, older histories that have been there for some time. You know, you've, you've been reading those titles that it's like kind of a, an idea that is there uh, since Thomas More or even from uh, ancient Greece. Uh, so big part of 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 the beginning of the book is a criticism of that, and we'll come to that later. Um, and the other aspect I would say is not just a strictly intellectual history book in a sense that we also try to look about the uh, economic shifts that somehow makes it even more appealing, not just in terms of uh, ideas, not just, uh, let's say, uh, thinkable, um, but also um, in a certain sense, uh, appealing for policymakers, and and it becomes kind of a tool that we can um, imagine to apply in a society to actually think uh, to change uh, the distribution of of income. So this this let's say the second part of the book is then a bit more about the broader economic, political, and cultural context under which the idea can um, become so appeal so appealing. Mm. It's interesting. You describe it as a uh, I think your quote you hear um it's often described in existing accounts as quote a timeless ideal of social justice and it's interesting how movements try and get historical validity right you try and find a history that shows that this policy is not what completely innovative or it has some grounding in the past it has some you validate it by giving it a history but the criticism i took from what you one of the criticisms i took from that kind of thinking uh, from your book is that that's a very, it's very simplistic, it's very undercooked, it's very immature kind of historical, very un immature, you know, historical understanding. And you would actually get a lot more from studying the history of the topic that might actually be helpful in how you think about it in the in the present day. Um, Anton, if you want to respond to that, please do. But otherwise, can we jump into that opening chapter where you talk about 
where you summarize a lot a lot of material so we have to really sketch it briefly but what's going on before the 1920s yes indeed so um to get to the first more methodological question there is indeed um, um, an argument against a certain type of proleptic or anachronistic reading of basic income, which we really try to warn against. So this is a move which will be familiar to many readers in recent intellectual history. For example, Samuel Moyne makes a very similar maneuver in the opening chapter of um, his book on human rights, where he says that something like the rights of man was indeed part of the political language of the 18th and 19th century. But what we now understand as human rights is actually a more recent language. I think we undertake a, a similar move in our first chapter, which is the anthropology. So we go over some of the existing histories of basic income and show how they construct this trans-historical narrative that sometimes goes from ancient Greece in the more extravagant versions. Um, in the more modest version, they start in early modern England, usually with Thomas More and his proposal for a subsistence uh, guarantee. And then they travel into the 18th century with Thomas Paine, and then in the 19th century with some agrarian thinkers and Henry George, and then into the 20th century. And there is a deeply mythological side to that story insofar as the continuity uh, is almost perfect and the ideal just tries to come about in every age and finds its own proponents and own executors in uh, the respective epoch in which it appears. And what we actually do is that we empirically debunk the continuity that's been built up there. So we take a very close, almost microscopic look at some of the proposals which are slotted into this mythology and say, well, if you compare them to what we now consider to be a basic income, namely a continuous a cash ground that is paid to everyone, then those previous ideas simply don't conform or even approximate that idea. So the continuity just begins to unravel as you confront it with the evidence and that also means, of course, that you have to ask a question, what were those previous ideals about? And we say that they were very much focused on land ownership and that they had this strongly agrarian or Roman background, namely in the Republican tradition, which makes it extremely different from what we now recognize as cash-based, basically. We um, just uh, extrapolate a little bit there, just very briefly about the idea of an agrarian law. That was certainly one of the central concepts in that chapter. One of you, could you explain that for our listeners, please? Yes, indeed, I'm sorry. Um, so the regarding law is, of course, a translation of the original Roman or Latin terminology, lex agraria, which was a, you could call it an emergency decree or sort of policy response to certain types of social inequality, which are very much associated with the pre-imperial period in Rome. Um, so, of course, there were two famous politicians, Tiberius and his uh, brother, the Gracchi brothers, as they're known, who tried to implement the version of this Lex Agraria, but then in a sort of senatorial coup or in an act of aristocratic revenge, they uh, were thwarted. But um, later in the period coming up to um, Caesar's seizure of power, there is also a lot of talk about this agrarian law. But the central concern here, of course, is the question of land ownership and uh, equal land ownership. So should land be exclusively held by a slave aristocracy that expands its ownership maybe through conquest or should a smaller, more democratic class of soldiers have access to all the land? And this is the central question which this agrarian law tradition revolves around. And this is of course not an exclusively Roman affair. It also has resonances and echoes across the modern period where what you see is that uh, someone like Thomas More, but also Thomas Paine, 
um, invariably try to model their own proposals for grant around the precedent of Roman grand laws, because they're also seen as very socially destabilizing or destructive. And the idea is that the debate around the agrarian law plunged the Roman Republic into civil war, and this is what finally led up to um, the imperial moment or, or Caesar's seizure of power. Of course, when Moore and Payne are talking about the agrarian laws, they're very much trying to claim that this is not the precedent they're looking at. Where they say, we want to redistribute resources and we want to redistribute land, but we're not going to create a situation of social chaos in which the Republic will become an empire. Fantastic. So over the course of the 19th century, there are a, a, a number of authors here and there who articulate something that looks a little bit more like a policy of cash transfer um, to alleviate poverty or to uh, raise uh, quality levels. Um, but things don't really sort of consolidate into anything substantial until the interwar period. Is that the, is, is that my, my reading of... Um, those chapters there correct or can, yeah, what's going on in the 19th century? It seems that cash transfers aren't particularly central and that things begin to change into a period. And then especially we move then into the 1940s and we introduce, I don't know about the hero of the piece, that's not the right way of putting it, but one of the central figures, Milton Freeman. So I'm asking you to do a lot there, but summary of the 19th century and then how things begin to change 1920s, 1930s. Daniel, maybe you could uh, pick up. Um, yeah, maybe Anton, you, you can say a few words maybe about late 19th century and then I'll, I'll follow up with, with Friedman, I guess. So in the 19th century, I'd say the echoes or at least the aftermath of that agrarian tradition you talked about is still relevant. Of course, you have industrialization. It's not as if economies are exclusively agrarian anymore. Um, you have now an industrial sector that's also capable of absorbing labor and you have the rise of wage payments as a very dominant mode of remunerating labor. And all of this, of course, increases the probability and even the attractiveness of possible cash growth. But still, if you look at most of the 19th century proposals that are now considered as precedents to the contemporary-based income, they still look vastly different, uh, mostly because they're still focused on land ownership. So you see that with some of the Paynites or American agrarian thinkers, really hope that you can just expand the frontier and thereby grant everyone democratic land ownership. Or, for example, with Henry George, when you have a really aggressive land tax, some of the funds that you get with that will actually be used to build a public sector. Now, there are a couple of thinkers in the 19th century, such as the obscure Belgian philosopher Joseph Charlier, who do seem to propose something that looks like a continuous cash grant. What is very striking with them is that they're completely marginal. Um, they build up no political following, they have no resonance certainly within policy or within political circles, and of course this means that the untimeliness of the proposal is symbolized by the very fact that these figures are so much. This also holds for some of the populist movements you have in the US in the late 19th century, is that the, the ultimate aim, even when they don't want an agrarian law, is to have an agrarian law without an agrarian law. So redistribute land, maybe use types of cash payments for it, but there's never the idea that you continuously pay people cash to let them leave the labor market or allow them to not work anymore. And this really changes in the 1930s and 1940s, certainly the US, because partly you have the closing of the frontier, and you have the rise of a new form of state, you have the rise of the welfare state, and you have an economy that's just no longer exclusively agricultural, so even more heavily 
industrial, and of course in the 50s and 60s already post-industrial. This is where I'll hand over to Daniel because he can tell us why that moment in the 30s and 40s is so crucial on those many fronts in ending the prior grand tradition that determines thinking about grants. Yeah, I mean, so if, if we focus a bit then on, on Friedman, that actually brings us to this kind of a next chapter, um, not only the, the story, but it's actually a chapter of the book. He is, I mean, we decided to focus on him because, of course, there are different versions that are out there at the same time, but his version might be, I mean, the most coherent or the most uh, clear statement of the reasons why he thinks and how he, he thinks about uh, uh, cash transfers in kind of a more um, economical uh, way. Uh, and it's it's actually quite early, so it's published, um, you know, in the uh, early '60s, um, in 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 uh, in a book. But he actually really works on the proposal already by the late '30s. Uh, and at the at the time, I mean, so Friedman doesn't have a job. Uh, interestingly, he's kind of saved by the New Deal because he's been working in all those um, uh, federal agencies. So it's kind of a, ironic, of course, for. Um, Milton Friedman to actually been saved uh, from unemployment uh, through public jobs, but um, he 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 works in those those agencies, and it's kind of an important period for him because he just thinks about a lot of uh, uh, questions that he didn't really thought about before, and in in part also uh, the income distribution and the whole discussion is happens also more or less at the same time where you have the socialist calculation debate, which is kind of a huge discussion uh, among economists that is. Uh, happening in the interwar period about the place the price mechanism has, has to have in how we allocate resources in society. Um, debates also about utilitarianism, so the whole model of welfare economics, which is that uh, if you transfer a unit of money from a rich to a poor people, you actually increase welfare in society. So you have kind of justification of redistribution and uh, equality in society. And all the, these these two things um, uh, move Friedman, of course, uh, more towards the market uh, um, framework. So he's definitely convinced that the price system is a better way to allocate uh, investment in society. And he does also think that the whole utilitarian framework actually doesn't work, that we can't actually dispute whether or not uh, a rich people has less uh, um, uh, use of his money, or uh, you know, experience less pleasure of him, of his money than than a, a poor people, a poor one. So there is no justification for transfers of money for equality. There is no reason that uh, economics should actually uh, promote these those kinds of ideas. But then, of course, rises kind of a problem um, if you um, don't think that all those uh, redistributive measures are justified. Um, you still have the problem of inequality at a certain sense. I mean, if the market generates big, important inequalities and actually leads a part of the population that it's unable to reproduce uh, itself, what do you do? And so this is also kind of an interesting thing for us because um, uh, there is, of course, stories about, you know, the, the role of neo I mean, the relation of neoliberalism with the states and how actually it uses the states to actually build markets or construct markets. Uh, but then the question about the relation uh, to neoliberalism, to uh, poverty and inequality is kind of less explored. And here Friedman, from the beginning, he's actually saying that, yes, we can tolerate high levels of inequality. But the question then uh, happens um, how we can actually do redistribution without compromising the price system. And from the start, this is the solution is to say, rather than going through public works, wage control policies, price controls, um, or 
whole strategies of decommodifying parts of the economy. Well, you can actually imagine a system where we guarantee everyone an, an income through this kind of a negative income tax system. So under a certain amount of income, then you receive money rather than paying it. And you kind of a, build a floor of income uh, under which nobody could fall rather than going to all those kind of new deal policies that compromise uh, the market. Fantastic. There's a nice quote um, towards the end of that chapter that I'm just going to use here as a sort of a linking uh, a linking point, which is from the economist John Kay, who you quote to say, the shift sort of described is that from um, poverty being a distinctive social problem, uh, a move away from that and towards redistributive market liberalism, which John Kay describes as, quote, the state must have a dominant role in matters of income distribu distribution, but should discharge the responsibility with as little interference as possible in the workings of the free market. So you avoid what Friedman calls the, I think the phrase that turns up repeatedly in the book is socially intolerable. I think that's the like the correct wording where the you know the capitalism does produce, the free market does produce um these rather extreme inequalities of wealth, and you need to do something about it, not denying that. And this is the way forward, the negative income tax. So we got we got Friedman there. What's fascinating, I thought really fascinating, is how popular that kind of thinking becomes in the States across the 50s, and then especially into the 60s. I wonder whether one of you could, um, yeah, just sort of summarize what's going on in the States. There's so much agreement, perhaps, you know, I don't know whether people are explicitly agreeing. There are a number of sort of um, seminars and lectures where you mention everyone in attendance is saying, even though I'm on this part, the left, and I'm on the right, I'm, we're, we're both in favor of this. But yes, what's going on in the States? It's amazing. But maybe just, to add a couple of things before, before going immediately to the 60s, I mean, of course, you know, the story here is in part about Friedman and neoliberalism. But if you look about debates um, of economists in that period, the extent of the agreement, especially among, um, let's say, modernized Keynesians, so somebody like James Mead, for example. So they are Keynesians, but they are trained in a more mathematical uh, um, departments. They have a kind of, a, they, are, they rely more on this kind of a, formalized view of economics. And they also agree that the price system is the best way to allocate investment in society. So the extent of the discussion between, let's say, neoliberalism and neoliberals and Keynesians is it's, it's reduced, right? I mean, the, the shift, I mean, the, the gap between these two schools in a certain sense uh, through the second half of the, of the 20th century narrows. So you really have like way more uh, agreement between them. And this is, I think, part of the story. It's like, it's not just a story about neoliberalism, it's also a kind of a shift within economics and in which we can think about redistribution and you can you know, have a version that is quite small. So you have a, a small floor, let's say a low basic income, and then you can be on the left and you want a more generous one. But you both agree that we can, we have to do it through the price system and meaning giving rather money to people rather than decommodifying and having kind of a more a dirigist state uh, in society. Mm. So this is kind of a thing, I think that uh, prepares the ground for what's coming next, right? And the second aspect, which I think is also quite a crucial is that even if you had this, this, this you know, welfare economics um, uh, focus on equality. So here we are already shifting to poverty, right? I mean, Friedman doesn't care about equality. He cares about poverty, about the floor. So, uh, so this is kind of a shift away from, let's say the welfare economics focus on redistribution and how inequality per se creates more welfare. 
But in their view, it's also pretty clear that um, it's not only about redistribution of money because Pigou also have a kind of a normative vision of needs. He thinks that if the money is spent on you know luxury stuff or you know maybe drinking, he would obviously say something like that, which is obviously a bit paternalistic, right? Um, it creates less welfare that is spent on more important needs. So he does think that ex to expand welfare in society, you also have to direct those this kind of redistribution to specific set of needs, which justify the idea that you would rather do public services, creating public museums and public education rather than giving cash, right? And so you also have this kind of framework that collapsed because it's seen as kind of more normative. Why would you impose this thing uh, on uh, economic agents? Let them choose themselves what they want. Uh, and so you have this, let's say, privatization of needs. And so needs are something out there and people will have to choose by themselves. And of course, the, the, the solution for people to choose by themselves is for them to go on the market, right? And then the market becomes like a solution to the problem of normativeness uh, and the paternalistic role of the state. Okay, fantastic. Can we can we jump in then to the the movers and the shakers in the states in the nineteen sixties? What ideas are prominent? Who are putting them forward? Uh, and in the background, you've got fears about automation and structural unemployment, right. and also the civil rights movement plays a sort of a, a key role here in increasing the popularity of basic income proposals. So, Daniel, yeah, can you uh, flesh out some of that for us? So, yeah, I mean, if, if we follow up from the question of this, you know, this uh, um, separation of the question of inequality to the, the question of poverty, and then, you know, getting away from a certain vision of needs, so rather saying people have to choose by themselves, um, you, you do have this kind of a, a vision that is at, at the, the core of the Kennedy administration. So if you think about the, um, the, the main economist of the, the Council of Economic Advisor, which is Walter Helder, which is probably one of the most influential economists uh, um, in in of that council uh, in U.S. history. So he's like super central. He is seen as a, a Canadian. I mean, Kennedy is seen as the moment where Canadianism becomes kind of an official thing, more respectable way to think about economics. But we somehow forgot that it's a certain strand of Canadianism. It's not the, the same as you know the one you have in the interwar period uh, or the postwar period. Uh, and Haller is also trained in those like more mathematical departments. He sees the world more as of an engineer. I mean, his father was an engineer, uh, and he's definitely more you know uh, attracted to uh, shifting tax incentives to do transfers, uh, uh, money transfers, rather than you know doing public works, creating jobs, building bridges and roads. I mean, certainly you you still have that, but one of the big policy uh, decision uh, of the Kennedy administration are the two big tax cuts uh, um, in 63-64, uh, which are basically a do-to-do Keynesianism, but without you know, expanding the state. So you basically do a tax cut, you stimulate the economy, uh, but is you know, a tax cut by incentive, doing it through the, the private actors, right? Uh, and this is obviously some kind of very different from what, I don't know, Roosevelt would have thought of. And immediately it comes to social policy. I mean, if we do, you know, boost the economy through tax cuts, what about poverty? How, how can we think about it? And then, well, the solution comes immediately in the, in the same way. I mean, maybe we should do the same way, use the fiscal apparatus of the state and actually do a negative income tax, which is a sort of for, you know, this kind of trash, cash transfer. And this is what we try to also show in the book. It's kind of a shift from this kind of a developmentalist state 
that is its aim is definitely to uh, you know orient uh, uh, investment to build things to this kind of transfer state which becomes way more dominant in the US by the second half of the 20th century which is its its aim is more to alter the distribution of income to use the fiscal instrument in different fields rather than do things itself and then yeah of course then you have you know this evolution goes way beyond in the 90s and the 2000s um but this is like the start of it and so it's an important shift because it happens before what we call the neoliberal revolution right it's not still not there reagan but you already see this kind of a uh shift in in the mid in the mid 60s so this is one part of the the argument and then you of course and i think Anton say a bit more about that but then you have also what we say the new left about michael harrington focusing on poverty i mean the book of Harrington uh, came out in 62 and then by 63 becomes a, a big thing. Uh, and he's certainly more attracted to the idea of guaranteed income than old school uh, version of New Deal um, policies. And it becomes more attractive because it says, okay, this is will elevate poverty directly, it's less normative, it's less uh, um, coercive, um, all this kind of a, you know, um, disciplining aspect of the welfare state we can can in, in a certain sense uh, be be get rid of through this this mechanism. Um, so not to say that Michael Harrington is the same as Milton Friedman, absolutely not. But they find both in for different reasons an appeal uh, through the income strategy. Um, and yeah, by 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 sixty five, you have like a, a a lot of most of the economists in the U.S. actually are in favor of it. Uh, and you have kind of a big coalition to actually increase this, this go towards this kind of a more income strategy um, that prepares the ground for for what's next, I guess. But you're right to say in this, uh, I think Anton might, might say more things about that. The question of automation plays a big role because it also displays the centrality of work that was so central to the New Deal order, of course, and the, the question of tackling poverty through regulating the labor markets. And the moment this question becomes to not disappear, but become less central. Then it opens the the space for different kind, a different kind of policy. Anton, jump in. Yes, indeed. So I think Danielle's already given us quite a panorama of how we are to understand the popularity of the idea in the sixties. So part of it has to do with the changing composition of a certain policy community, the type of economists who usually determine policy, um, what view of economics they have itself and how this reflects our idea of welfare state. But of course, as we said, it's not an exclusively intellectual history. There's also an economic background to many of these developments. Insofar as there are these repeated waves of what are called automation manias or automation panics in the 50s and 60s, where the idea that soon you'll have workerless factories and you'll have uh, a population that isn't simply out of work during an economic slump, but might be permanently shut out of the labor market. Um, that this actually becomes a real problem, not just for policymakers, also for, for activists. Um, and of course, this uh, takes on a distinctly racial form in the American case, because what happens in the 50s and 60s is that you have massive migration from the South, namely the sharecropping economy, into the new factory towns of the North. And many black workers, of course, enter those Northern labor markets uh, on the principle of last hired and first fired. As I said, so they face a practically dual mar labor market in many ways. This means that even as there are very few industrial jobs, they're the first ones to lose them. And this creates a so-called crisis in inner cities, which already leads to riots in the middle of the 60s, for example, the Watts riots are a very famous example of this. And 
there are a variety of responses to this problem. So you have a more classical wing of the civil rights coalition, uh, which is also called as the civil rights labor coalition, which is very famous um, for black activists like Bayard Rustin or Philip Randolph. But then you have younger and you'd say less classical uh, civil rights activists who think that the only way to solve this new form of black, not just black, but basically, Black structural employment is by guaranteeing income rather than having public um, works. So of course, one of the other ideas that accompanies this is that there's now also part of the left that begins to think that uh, a state that determines people's needs, that tells them how to consume, that tells them what kind of products it needs to accept, that tells them what kind of healthcare or what kind of jobs they need to take, um, is overly authoritarian. Of course, in the American context, this is even more sensitive because of the fact that legal segregation has only been abolished and voting rights for many Black Americans have only become a reality. So there is a tangible sense that letting the state dictate people's needs, also on an individual level, can be morally problematic and politically risky. And all of this actually creates a perfect storm for basic income proposals, because as we said, on the one hand, you have the Friedmanites who want uh, a leaner and slimmer welfare state, who want to make the welfare state market friendly. And on the other side, you have uh, part of the civil rights coalition that is becoming increasingly skeptical of a labor-centered approach to social policy. And all this leads up to that sort of boiling point of 68-69 in which you have new riots um, and which of course in which Nixon wins the presidential election and in which Nixon comes very close to implementing something like a basic income in his family system plan or a sort of tax credit plan he proposes but as Daniel might also tell you um, even though we should maybe um, move on, but it's important to end on Nixon insofar as he exemplifies both some of the typical features, but also limits of basic income in the 60s, because it almost seems to border on implementation. It almost gets implemented, and then it, for some reason, doesn't work out. There seems to be a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm for basic income proposals in the US in the late 60s, and they're beginning to be implemented, as Anton's just said, but things fall apart. <laughs> it does not last and things sort of fall apart in the early 70s. I think it's fair to say that this book is not about implementation and what happens next. No, no. It, this is this is the, 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 on the side of how policies are sort of um, thought about and ideas developed. But so with that, you know, caveat, I appreciate this is not what the book would have. What happens? Why does, it, why, does it, why does it not go where all of it seems like it's going in one direction, but it doesn't. It sort of stops. Yeah, but I mean, I think maybe maybe you can do it now, but maybe later. I, I think there is like a broader question about why it never really happens. And in the end, we do think that it's not it's never going to happen. And so the book is also oh. about. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's going to happen. But I mean, the question here, and this is like also, I don't know if we have to address this. It's like yes, in the book we actually consider a broader set of policies, not only strictly speaking basic income, because what mm -hmm. we think is that yes, basic income is kind of a the distant idea where this whole thing is shifting, right? But it, we never get there. And there is a reason why we never get there because, you know, if we really get there, then it poses problems for the labor market, for mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, labor market discipline. Um, so yes, it's, you know, capitalists don't, don't want full basic income, uh, but they do want cashification in a certain sense. Interesting. Okay, so let's jump over 
across the Atlantic and to debates about or discussion enthusiasm for basic income in 1970s and 1980s Europe. Could one of you please summarize the key elements of how and why this happens? And it seemed to me reading that chapter that in Europe, it's more straightforwardly a left-wing policy. I don't know, it appeals to people on the political left. There's not the same, I mean, let me know if I've, I've misread that compared to the right. And there also seemed to be, there's a lot about work ethic. I'm interested in that, um, challenging the, the sort of the work ethic uh, ideal. And there's also a lot more about social control, I thought, in the European discussion. So yes, one of you, please get us going. Yes. Um, so indeed, there are some continuities with the American debate, and you can even trace a direct lineage insofar as many of the European authors we talk about first get their ideas from American precedents. And so there's one particular American author, Robert Fielbaum, who already writes um, pamphlets in favor of basic income in the 50s and then becomes um, a proponent or rather an ally of Friedman in the 60s. And he's actually a very important source of inspiration for some of the Dutch and also French writers around basic income in the 70s. So it's not as if it was part of genetically born, as I say, or that it comes out of nothing. There are American roots to this discussion, but it does take on a particular form in Europe, as you said, and it does seem to really uh, strike roots on the left rather than the right. Um, of course, there are right-wing thinkers who are in favor of negative income taxes, who have ideas about cash transfers, but it's really a sort of new left that is really enamored by the idea in the 70s and 80s. And that's what we focus on in that chapter. Um, now, the shifts that are really important for understanding why basic income suddenly begins to flourish on the left uh, is firstly um, a sort of split within um, the left itself, where you now have a left that is much further removed from a classical labor movement um, as parts of the union or parts of the classical socialist and communist parties are. So you have a new, mainly student-based left that comes out among, uh, uh, around 68, that obviously has a very different experience of the labor market. So it's very much faced with the stagflation and the unemployment of the 70s and 80s. Um, there's a protracted period in which many members of this generation are shut out of work. And at the same time, their experience with the welfare bureaucracy is increasingly unpleasant. And this means that when they hear about these ideas, for example, to make unemployment, and insurance um, unconditional and permanent. So you're not obliged to look for a job, you don't have to apply um, for specific positions, then that has very high appeal. Um, and this seems like a wholly opportunistic reason to support it, but as you see with authors such as André Gortz, but also Belgian philosopher Philippe Van Parijs, one of the most famous proponents of basic income, but actually frequents a lot of these unemployment activist groups in the 80s and 70s, is that it's also about a shift in the anthropology um, of what emancipation is actually about, or what is the anthropology that that stands for. And it, there is a book, of course, by André Gortz, who's a prominent French thinker who figures in that chapter, which is called Adieu au proletariat, or Farewell to the Working Class, as it's called in the English uh, translation, which does say that something like the proletariat or the classical working class that um, the left has inherited from the 19th century should no longer be considered the central subject of emancipation, or it's no longer the subject of history that's going to redeem people and bring them liberation. And the basic income is a kind of policy complement to that farewell to the proletariat, which some of these new left thinkers begin to say. Because what you see in the 80s in the Netherlands, which always had a relatively weak labor movement, uh, a welfare state 
that wasn't as particularly generous as some of the other European countries, is that basic income becomes both a wedge to sideline this classical labor movement and say we can move the left beyond the work ethic if we manage to implement this policy, and at the same time we can make uh, the state less authoritarian and more cybernetic, as they hope. Um, so social control will be decreased and the work ethic, which is uh, antiquated anyway, will no longer be uh, important. Fantastic. Daniel, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, not much. Actually, uh, yeah, I think Anton basically, uh, you know, um, uh, said mo most of what we, we try to, to to discuss in the book. I mean, maybe a few things, um, just a, a little side of it. Uh, um, the case of France is kind of an interesting one, too. I mean, France is, I mean, you have all, most of the authors are French. I mean, Henri Gors, uh, we, we actually mentioned Foucault, of course, that actually comments on the, on the negative income tax in his lessons uh, on, on neoliberalism, his lessons on biopolitics, 79 um, lessons at the Collège de France. Um, and interestingly, the context of that is uh, the context of uh, Valéry Giscard d'Estaing. So it's like this kind of a new um, liberal, I mean, right wing, but uh, liberal in the sense of, uh, as we say it in French, liberal. Um, so one might say like one of the, the first version of neoliberalism in France is with Giscard, so it's kind of very different from the gold, it's less, less status, it's like more uh, open to rely on price signals rather than this kind of dirigist model. Um, and Giscard actually sends one of his uh, um, collaborators to the US uh, uh, to actually study the negative income tax, and he brought to book this, this uh, Functionnaire, this uh, uh, um, that would become minister after, which is about a way to solve poverty through without compromising uh, the market system. But immediately the question becomes, and this is appealing for Foucault, of course, that it's a less normative system, and especially as Foucault is like more has been more interested in what he called subjectivation techniques. So how institutions not only you know, coerce us in a certain ways or repress us in a certain ways, but also shape us from within, which is what is interesting and how they shape our subjectivity, how they shape our, our identity. And he does see in a certain sense in neoliberalism, this kind of a interesting form of governmentality that doesn't rely on those techniques, that governs in a certain sense, that actually uh, relies on incentives that push people into a certain direction rather than others, but doesn't subjectify people in the same way as the old welfare state. So it's not like he thinks it's great. Uh, it's not like he becomes like a neoliberal in a certain sense, but it, it opens up spaces to experiment and to experiment with the self, to open, you know, uh, um, spaces where you can maybe create something else. Uh, and this is what he ob he's obviously interested in, right? That's also the moment where he goes to the US and he's kind of uh, uh, attracted to this um, Californian um, context. And um, and I think here you have also part of the, the explanation of the appeal for a certain left, right? That is, is focused on these normative subjectifying techniques and then basic income or guaranteed uh, uh, or negative income tax uh, uh, devices offers them the solution. But the question, of course, is like, yes, the solution, the envision still rely in a certain sense on the market, a certain form of the market, but still the market. And of course, the conditions under which their version uh, could happen are, you know, uh, disappearing because you have a retreat of the, of the working class movement, the decline in unions. And so the relations, the, of power between capital and labor are not in favor of, of labor anymore. So the conditions you need to have a high basic income 
uh, are disappearing at the same time as they seem to be it becomes some somehow a more appealing response. So you have this kind of contradiction here where the left becomes more appealed to use basic income as a way to uh, 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 give more autonomy to uh, the subjects. But at the same time, at some time, everything that was built to actually shape this this uh, power relation and maybe uh, you know implement a left version of it uh, is not available anymore. So. It's yeah, it's it, and I think it it conditions the the whole story in, in the decades that follow that you go for more radical versions of it, but where the only person that can implement it actually don't want the version. Maybe you know they want the the Silicon Valley version of it. Okay, fantastic. Oh, so we're gonna we're gonna move into the sort of the uh, your shift to sort of the, just over to the global south in your penultimate chapter. Um, as you've described in the US and in Europe, there is a move away from thinking that the state can alleviate policy through spending or through intervention. The state can achieve uh, that goal and a move away from that to believing that policies of basic income um, might be helpful. There is a concomitant development in the rest of the world, or the global South, rather, uh, where I wanna, I'm going to quote you here. Uh, sort of the central issue in that chapter is the broader rejection and disillusion with theories of development centered on modernization and industrialization. A move away from those two and towards notions of alleviating poverty through cash transfers. Could you uh, split up into, into two halves then? Um, why do people turn against modernization and industrialization? And then how do they see cash transfers working? In, so this is going on in countries like India and Brazil and Mexico and South Africa. Uh, yeah, those two halves, please. Yeah, so that's a big question. I mean, <laughs> sorry, you could say like again here we, we. I mean, you have this kind of proliferation of experiments um, in the global south, especially in southern Africa. Um, and the conventional story is, well, you know, we made some um, random, randomized controlled experiments there and there. And it, you know, show results, it works. And so now it's like, it's the thing that we have to do to alleviate poverty. So that's the story you generally read. Um, what we try to show in the book is the kind of a more, com you know, complex history where cash transfers really kick, kicked in, in in the South um, by the late nineties. And the reason is not because there was some like, you know, experiments doing like some economists at Harvard that works. It's really because you have a decline of development economics and a certain understanding of development that is organized through industrialization. So if you think about most of the post-colonial leaders, it's pretty clear for them that poverty is not a problem separate from the question of the inequality between countries. So this is one of a uh, first shift, let's say it's like for them, the, the problem is inequality between the North and the South. And if you want to uh, you know, get rid of that, that inequality, you need a state-led development and you need industrialization in the south because that's the only way you're gonna you know get rid of those uh, un, uh, uh, trade unbalances and you're gonna get rid of poverty and a lot of countries try different ways to that you know uh, uh, india for sure uh, mexico a lot of countries in latin america some countries um, uh, in africa the congo for example also um but you know, I mean, it works to a certain point. You have interesting results uh, uh, in industrialization. You have growth. 
Uh, but it's not completely a success. And one part that is definitely not a success is uh, poverty reduction. So in most of those countries, I mean, poverty is still pretty high. Uh, so basically, the you know the the fruits of of growth run upwards to uh, uh, a rising you know uh, uh, class. Uh, and 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 then the second question that hits that becomes you know uh, uh, very dominant is uh, the debt crisis. And then you have by you know uh, uh, the late 80s, 90s, uh, structural adjustment uh, uh, plans imposed on those countries, and then it becomes kind of a you know kind of a, uh, what follows becomes quite obvious. It's like they have to dismantle all the or this older model, price controls, um, you know, privatized state um, um, companies, and it creates huge poverty. I mean, poverty increases a lot in some of those countries, especially Mexico, which is one of the cases we have uh, in the book, but also South Africa after the end of the apartheid. And then the, the alternative to this older model you have becomes you know, using the state to make those cash transfers, to ease out the transition. So cash transfers in that sense, and that's why we try to argue in the book, are not an alternative to neoliberalism in those countries, but a way to make it work. It's like those structural adjustments actually uh, create those great imbalances, imbalances and um, uh, uh, poverty. And so how you actually make this privatization agenda work is by allowing people to actually operate within the market. Uh, and that's the moment really by the 90s that all most of countries began to expand their cash apparatus, including Brazil. Uh, not to say that it's a bad thing. I mean, it's one of the programs that, you know, uh, uh, decreased poverty around the world uh, significantly, which is Bolsa Familia of Lula. But it is somehow significant that uh, uh, the main Lula policy is a cash transfer policy. Uh, and let's say the most, you know, state central program creating jobs are something that seems completely out of reach of most government now. So as in, if in a certain sense, that period also goes along with a decline in state capacity and a capacity to actually uh, organize, regularize the uh, the labor markets. Okay, um, what's happening? So that's that's when I think about basic income. I I think of um, speeches given by like Mark Zuckerberg and so on in recent years about the potential sort of to transform global poverty. Um, what, what yeah? What is the association with basic income ideas and um, tech billionaires, and then something you call techno populism? I wonder if you could un, you know uh, unpack that a little bit, please. Yes, there is a superficial way you could read the name we give to that new argument for basic income. So we call it the techno populist case for basic income, and then there's a deeper way. Um, the superficial one is obviously that these are mostly tech CEOs who build companies new digital platforms that are relatively quick and fast. So it allows for, for example, the transfer and information and communication, and also therefore money um, through these unmediated rapid platforms. And this means that they have this idea that you can directly reach, I don't know, uh, poor Kenyan farmers on the other side of the planet and send a sum of money through your app. And that is your personalized cash transfer, of course, but that is a much more effective way of solving poverty rather than giving money to the development aid agencies or to corrupt state bureaucracies that might entail the possibility that much of the money actually disappears in the private bank accounts of local elite brokers. Um, so that is the superficial reading of that new techno-populist argument for basic. The deeper argument that we treat in the fifth chapter, and this 
goes beyond the question of why Silicon Valley likes basic income so much. Um, because if you just look at a country or rather a city like San Francisco, it's very obvious why the mobile and precarious labor force that has very high housing costs, uh, why it would have to be kept uh, more secure through something like cash transfers uh, without, of course, ever giving them something like council housing. But the techno-populist case is also about the rise of a new type of politics, not just in the West, but across the world in the last 40 and 30 years, as that type of transfer state has become more prominent. Um, because the original welfare state um, that we talked about wasn't just an intellectual institution, it wasn't just a product of beverage and some of these welfare economists, but it was also the work of civil society organizations, mainly unions and parties, that actually got a very strong grip and assured people's access to the state on the middle of the century. Now, in Belgium, this has very explicit um, appearances insofar as if you receive unemployment insurance in Belgium, you're much more likely to get it or more easily get it when you're a member of a union. The unions actually have part of uh, the social security budget under their control. Now, what has happened in the last 40 years, of course, is there's been a tremendous decline in the power of these civil society organizations. I mean, unions are a dramatic example of this, but you also see this with parties and other intermediary organs, um, as they're called in French. And this means that politics has increasingly become more volatile, but it's also increasingly become a game between technocrats and populists on two sides. So you either have technocrats who say, we don't need parties, we, can, we just have technical expertise, they know what's best for citizens. And populists say, we also don't need parties because we have direct access to the will of the people and we can just elect a leader that can embody that will. And of course, we've known the last 10 years is a period in which technocrats and populists disagree on many things and actually sometimes engage in heavy fighting. At the same time, they have a very curious convergence on the social policy scale insofar as they both find themselves defending cash transfers for reasons that are not completely unrelated. And so the techno-populist case for cash transfers also has to do about why you have certain central bank bureaucrats that say, oh, we need to do quantitative easing for the people. And then you have, for example, five-star movement in Italy that say, oh, we need a citizen's dividend, which means that we don't want any of these corrupt welfare payments, we just want cash ground. That can make it easier for everyone to survive in the current labor market. And this, once again, goes beyond the Silicon Valley enthusiasm which is about the internet and which is about the new opportunities for communication that the online world offers and talks about a structural change, not just on the level of society, but on the level of the state. And so the shift to a transfer state has also gone hand in hand with the shift to a more disorganized, more atomized, more liquid um, form of social organization. And I think this is the typical story of the last 10 years through which basic income again tells us something about not just social policy or not just welfare policy, but uh, how politics mainly in the developed world has changed. Brilliant. Okay, so I'm a, I'm wary of the times. So I have one last one last question then, and Daniel sort of alluded to it earlier, which is, and I know historians aren't necessarily supposed to do this sort of thing, but what do you think is going to happen to the current enthusiasm for basic income? around the world is you sort of suggest that it's not a policy that will ever be implemented fully again uh, predict the future for us please yeah so that's a yeah it's an important question and we've been discussing uh with anton about this uh, for some time now because it's yeah it's one question that always ends up you know arising in any discussion we have with the book 
And I mean, there's a reason why we, we don't strictly focus on basic income in the book. So we see basic income obviously as kind of the centerpiece of the, the, the book, but we also look at all those cash transfers policies that have been, uh, you know, uh, expanding over the years. So this kind of rising centrality of cash when we think about social policy. And the reason is, I think, because we do think that uh, it's it's kind of a policy that's it's always there, it's like it, on the merge of arriving, but it's, we never get there. But the shift towards cash, it's it's real. And it's part of what explains the appeal of, of you know, basic income, because it, it looks like well, the, the end point of this uh, uh, whole shift should be that. But then the question is, yeah, why it doesn't happen? And I mean, there are many reasons why you can think of. I mean, one is that, of course, it, it could, in a certain sense, yeah, weaken uh, uh, labor discipline. So it's not even exactly clear that you will you will get, or certainly not the left version. So, you know, the, the, the power relations you need to implement that version is quite unlikely. Um, you might have, and this is not, you know, uh, completely impossible, a very low version of it, which is what basically, uh, you know, uh, the Nixon plan was about. Uh, and this, of course, is like way more appealing to uh, Silicon Valley uh, uh, tech barons because it it really kind of helped their their vision of the labor market. Meaning, they can work on those apps. You can work as Uber. You can work on on a, a certain kind of a very precarious labor market. But then you get subsidized by the state through those cash transfers. And so it's a way for that segment of the labor market to actually work. But I mean, it's yeah. It's not clear that you'll find a, a, a coalition that will actually implement it. And, you know, it's pretty clear that the, the version of the idea that um, receiving money without working, you still have kind of a strong sentiment in society against that. Um, and people are generally uh, quite reluctant to accept this, this idea, which I don't, we don't think is like the, the crucial problem. We actually, I mean, it's not, we are not against cash transfers. Um, we are against like this kind of a shift towards cash, but I mean, you know, transfers in themselves have already existed. You have unemployment benefit, you have pension uh, uh, schemes. So it's not exactly an argument completely against cash transfers. Um, but yeah, the, the whole shift in itself is what we, we think is the problem. And the, the possibility to have a very emancipatory version of it seems uh, unlikely and, and also kind of a narrow version of what emancipation is all about. I mean, is it really what we want, a society where we have more equal consumers? Um, it's it's not bad, right? But it's it seems like a really, you know, uh, uh, a decrease in ambition uh, within the left. It's like, we, we can't do anything anymore, so we can at least have enough cash to actually operate in the market. So that's, I would say, our most uh, uh, important uh, critique of it, I guess. I don't know if Anton would agree on that, but... Well, Anton, yes, I'll give you the last word then. No, I, I think the book was written not necessarily out of an ambition to make a partisan intervention or to take a standpoint pro or contra. We very much wanted to take a step back and the critical ambition arises much later after we've done all the historical interpretation we've just talked about. At the same time, as we said, there's a recurring paradox or rather a recurring contradiction to um, basic income moments, as they're called, sort of perfect storms in which finally the proposal seems to be on the verge of implementation and that it doesn't happen. Um, and that is the sufficiency paradox, namely a sufficient uh, basic income is usually unaffordable, while a, um, a affordable basic income is insufficient. Uh, 
And this, of course, also has to do or it has a gradient uh, with power relations within society, namely what social group needs to pay higher taxes or needs to give more resources to the state in order to be able to finance it. Um, but this is also today, um, basic income is not being implemented, but the shift to cash is real, as Danielle said. But if we imagine a situation in which the power balance within society is altered in such a way that a basic income would become possible, and that's purely hypothetical, but let's ask ourselves the question. Well, then you have to wonder whether the uh, revolutionary situation in question will actually entail demands for basic income and maybe for something else. And why would we stop there? Or why would uh, the demand end there if uh, now demand even more enthusiastic or even more uh, ambitious forms of social intervention? And I think what is very typical that makes basic income appealing also in the 21st century is that both the right and the left seem to agree on the necessity for some kind of macroeconomic stabilization, or they have the idea that you need a state that actually intervenes and orders markets, but the idea that you need to socialize investment or that you need to have public control of what we do with society's resources, that idea has become far less popular and plausible in the century. Once again, if basic income is welfare without the welfare state, it also speaks to a number of problems that apply far beyond just social all right, Dr. Anton Jäger and Professor Daniel Zamora Vargas, thank you very much indeed, gentlemen. The book is Welfare for Markets, A Global History of Basic Income, published by University of Chicago Press. I think it's £25 uh, in the UK. Oh, it's absolutely fantastic. It's a genuine global history as well. It was a really uh, interesting, and it's only 170 pages. It's good. There's a lot packed in there. But yeah, I definitely recommend it. Uh, so yeah, thank you very much, gentlemen. Thanks. Thank you for inviting us. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you.